Hey, everybody. It is Thursday, September 7th. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mosh Wanunu. Hello, Mosh. Hello, everybody. I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Um, Jill, I know you're a bit jealous of this, but I'm headed to the U.S. Open this evening. This actually pains me because you don't even <laughs> like professional tennis. And I'm sitting here dragging because I was up so late on Tuesday night watching mm-hmm. this historic match. If you were wondering why I was texting you at like 1030 at night. I was. <laughs> That's yeah. why. Let me correct the record here. I don't dislike tennis. I just am not as much of a rabid fan as you are. Jill, rest assured, I tried to get you an extra ticket <laughs> and I'll take some photos for you or some video, whatever you wish. I don't know if that helps or hurts, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you tell me, I'll ask a trigger warning. Would you like content from the US Open or not this evening? There aren't very many tickets that I'd be jealous of, but this is one of them. But please enjoy. We'll get more to why tonight is such a big deal at the Open a little bit later in this podcast. All right. And with that, let's get to some headlines. Not totally a surprise, but the world has just experienced the hottest summer on record. Speaking of which, heat waves across the U.S. are forcing some schools to close just as the school year was getting underway. And sticking with extreme weather, some major storms are brewing in the Atlantic Ocean. On to politics, special counsel David Weiss is seeking an indictment of Hunter Biden this month. As they say on Anchorman, that escalated quickly. <laughs> and a lawsuit in Colorado looking to keep Donald Trump off the ballot under a clause in the 14th Amendment. Overseas Secretary of State Antony Blinken visits Kiev and promises more U.S. aid. And back at home, how a convicted murderer escaped from prison one week ago and authorities still can't find him. Plus, as we were just mentioning, history being made at the U.S. Open. And start me up, the Rolling Stones out with their first original album, Hackney Diamonds, after an 18-year wait. Plus, Moshe's on the same history. Jill, some real 80s bangers came out today. We'll do a little bit of musical history in today's On This Day. All right, it is official. This summer has been the hottest on record. And by a long shot, the planet experienced its hottest June on record, followed by the hottest July, both breaking previous records. The European Union's Copernicus Climate Change Service found that from June to August, the temperature was an average of 16.8 degrees Celsius or 62.2 degrees Fahrenheit just about a degree above average. Both July and August are estimated to have been about 1.5 degrees Celsius hotter than the pre-industrial average for the 1850 to 1900 period. And that 1.5 is significant because trying to limit the global temperature increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius, that is a central pledge of the Paris International Climate Change Agreement from 2015 the goal of which is to prevent the most catastrophic impacts of climate change, a.k.a. heat waves, devastating wildfires, uh, droughts, etc. Yeah, really, depending on where you live, that could mean flooding. It could mean rain. I mean, we're talking about not weather events, but climate changing. So this one and a half degree uh, hot summer uh, is something they're certainly looking at, but it really is a, a blip right now. And when they think about one and a half degrees warmer, they're looking at larger trend lines. So we haven't hit the point of no return or the point that they've been really worried about, but certainly alarm bells 
went off this summer. And despite the fact that we're now in September, summer still appears to be going and we're still seeing some major heat waves, especially here in the U.S. More than 61 million people are under a heat advisory right now. As students return to classrooms, a late summer heat wave is baking Texas, the Northeast and the Mid-Atlantic forcing some schools to close or let kids out early. That's been happening in a number of districts in the Northeast. According to the National Weather Service, temperatures are about 10 degrees above normal right now. As extreme heat becomes more frequent, some experts are urging schools to figure out how to keep classrooms cool, but it can cost millions of dollars to install and maintain air conditioning systems. While in certain parts of the country, we're very accustomed to having AC everywhere. There are parts of the country where they haven't invested in AC infrastructure because frankly, it just never gets that hot. According to a report from the Center for Climate Integrity, nearly 14,000 K-12 through public schools that did not need cooling systems as of 50 years ago now need them. The cost there, $40 billion. Yeah, and speaking of extreme weather, we're watching another major storm brewing in the Atlantic Ocean. Lee is set to become a Category 5 hurricane in the next few days, the strongest storm of the season so far. It's looking like it's going to miss Puerto Rico and head just to the north of the Caribbean. But there are still questions about whether it's going to make a turn north and avoid the U.S. East Coast and Bermuda. The models at this point do not have a full consensus yet. Yeah, there's hope that it will do that straight shot between Bermuda and the U.S. Eastern Seaboard and then, you know, basically be a hurricane for the fish. But right now, uh, the models are all over the place. I love Hurricane Twitter or Hurricane X, I guess, um, Jill, all the meteorologists talking to each other, sharing their models. So from very early on here, uh, even last weekend, they were already looking at this thing. This could be a thing. And so we're going to watch this weekend as the models adapt. Again, whether uh, this Category 5 will make a turn towards the north or head west straight into the U.S. eastern seaboard. One of the concerns out there also is a potential Sandy-like scenario as it heads towards the Northeast New England. So that's something that everyone is closely watching and monitoring, uh, and we will be as well. Not to be outdone, forecasters are also watching what's called Tropical Depression 13, which formed in the Atlantic and is believed to also at some point become a powerful hurricane in the next few days. Okay, Moshe, let's talk politics and the law. Increasingly, this campaign cycle, the two feel like one and the same. Prosecutors said Wednesday that they will ask a grand jury to return an indictment against Hunter Biden before the end of the month. Special counsel David Weiss informed a federal judge in a filing yesterday. Now, this news comes after a tentative plea deal between the government and attorneys for the president's son over taxes and an agreement on a firearms charge fell apart this summer. Hunter had originally been charged with misdemeanor tax offenses and also a felony firearms offense. Those were both separate cases. But in open court, a federal judge questioned provisions of that tentative deal that would have allowed the president's son to avoid prison time. After that, Hunter Biden pleaded not guilty to the three charges. David Weiss, who was elevated to special counsel last month, cited the Speedy Trial Act as the impetus for the short timeline. So this changed really quickly, Jill. Just a couple weeks ago, we were talking about this plea deal. The plea deal falls through. The judge kind of pokes holes in it saying, uh, really? Uh, David Weiss then gets promoted to special counsel, and he's already planning on indicting Hunter, at least on this gun charge. Now, when it comes to this gun charge, just taking it back a second, it has to do with a gun application he filled out. And he agreed on the gun application that he was not taking drugs. It's something that appears on a number of gun applications. Well, at the time, according to his own book, he was actually taking crack cocaine. And so 
they have filed the charges related to lying on that gun application. The tax charge has to do with about $100,000 in taxes that he didn't pay, uh, but has since paid back. In a court filing of their own on Wednesday, Hunter Biden's attorney said their client has continued to abide by the parameters of the diversion agreement, the firearm agreement that they made as part of that plea deal, which called for him to remain drug free without committing additional crimes in order to see that gun charge dismissed. So they're still playing like, listen, he's playing good here. Why the need for an indictment? But it's clear here, at least based on the filing yesterday, that they are going to go ahead with an indictment related to that gun application charge. And this does all come as Republicans on Capitol Hill are increasingly talking about impeachment. Uh, We did a deep dive on that in the newsletter earlier this week, so you can read in on that. And they are continuing to look at the business ties, specifically when Biden was vice president under Obama and what role he may have played in his son Hunter's businesses at the time. Hunter was involved in business in China, in Ukraine, and Republicans this week are asking the National Archives for all of then Vice President Biden's emails to see what he was up to and to what extent he was involved in anything and whether there was anything unethical, inappropriate, and potentially illegal there. And this all comes at an inopportune time for President Biden, uh, especially as he tries to take the high road here and say, you know, listen, your guy over there has been indicted four times, faces four criminal trials, but Biden is not completely clean here, right? His son now being indicted. There's still a special counsel looking into President Biden and some of the classified documents he had at his home. Um, But Republicans are trying to say, no, this is all equal here, man. Everyone's corrupt. And uh, the response from the White House is saying, you're not even comparing apples and oranges here. You're comparing apples and elephants. That's the quote that came out this week. Again, trying to draw a difference here. The question, of course, is, despite all these legal differences, you know, this is the president's son on a gun application charge. That's a former president with four criminal indictments. How will it play to voters? Moshe, I think this will really be elevated if they can tie Hunter Biden to Joe Biden, because up until this point, at least Hunter is not an elected official. President Biden has has openly said, look, he had uh, problems, right? Like we we stand by him. He went through a rough period in his life. So I guess the question is, does anything really tie back to Joe Biden's time as vice president? Was there any kind of funny business going on with Ukraine? I mean, those would be real serious issues to look into. Um, But at this point, at least as of this recording, it appears that everything with Hunter Biden really just has to do with Hunter Biden. And we know that Vice President Biden made a couple phone calls, but it was sort of like, what's the weather? Sort of trying to help him out. Um, But no specific policy actions that he took as vice president. I think that's the bar, the line they're trying to draw here. And Biden, President Biden, has been pretty forthright saying, listen, I didn't do any of that stuff. So uh, he would have to uh, deal with any sort of hypocrisy there should anything come out uh, out of these Republican investigations. Meanwhile, back to the Republican race, where there are increasing efforts to try to prevent Donald Trump from even being allowed on the ballot. On Wednesday, six Colorado voters, with the help of a D.C. watchdog group called Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics, filed a lawsuit seeking to keep him off the state's presidential ballots next year. The lawsuit is based on a clause in the 14th Amendment, Section 3, which says anyone who, quote, engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the Constitution after taking an oath to defend the Constitution is ineligible to hold office unless they are granted amnesty by a two-thirds vote of Congress. So this argument is targeting Trump's actions after the 2020 election and surrounding the insurrection on January 6th. 
It has only been used a handful of times since the 1860s. It was actually ratified post-Civil War when some Southern states were sending people to Congress who had prominent roles in the Confederacy or otherwise supported acts of rebellion or insurrection against the United States. In this case, the lawsuit demands that Colorado's Secretary of State, Jenna Griswold, not print Donald Trump's name on the Republican primary ballot. And it is a legal fight that will likely end at the Supreme Court. Moshe, I know you have been inundated with questions about whether these four separate criminal cases that Trump faces could potentially bar him from office. And the answer there has always been no. He could actually serve as president, technically speaking, from prison. Um, But does this argument, does this constitutional argument have any legs? Well, according to some, including liberals and some conservatives, potentially here. This, by the way, is based on two of the indictments. But even if he's convicted of the election interference charges on the federal level in Georgia, uh, technically that does not bar him from the ballot. But this is an interpretation of those cases, even without him being convicted of those cases, that some believe has traction. So this theory has been going around, but really got some more attention in recent weeks when some prominent conservative law professors published an article last month. William Baud and Michael Paulson wrote a piece called The Sweep in Force of Section 3 of the Constitution. In it, they write that the bottom line is that Trump both, quote, engaged in insurrection or rebellion and gave aid or comfort to others engaging in such conduct within, they believe, the original meaning of those who wrote Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. If what we've seen in the past couple of years, even without a trial, is even close to accurate, uh, they believe he is no longer eligible for the office of the presidency or any other federal office, again, according to their interpretation of the 14th Amendment. Again, these are two conservative members of the Federalist Society. That was then followed by another article written by a liberal and conservative expert, including Judge J. Michael Luddig. He was on Bush's shortlist for the Supreme Court, uh, often looked to uh, by conservatives for his insights. He agreed with them. Uh, He wrote, we believe that any disinterested observer who witnessed what happened on January 6th and anyone who learns about these many failed schemes would come to the same conclusion that Trump should be barred from the ballot. Now, that said... Uh, You talked about the case in Colorado, the Secretary of State in New Hampshire, a Republican also looking into this, though the governor there, Sununu, dismissed it over the weekend. The Trump campaign, for its part, dismissing all of it, saying the people who are pursuing this absurd conspiracy theory and political attack and political attack on President Trump are stretching the law beyond recognition. Uh, In fact, Trump, by the way, is fundraising off of this, saying these guys are a bunch of rhinos, Republicans in name only, uh, and they're trying to kick me off the ballot. Give me money so I can fight it. You mentioned, by the way, this court fight could end up in the Supreme Court. That's the belief among a number of these legal experts here. The question is then, Supreme Court, 6-3 conservative majority, three justices appointed by Trump. How would they rule in this case? How would they interpret this? Uh, And that's something we might see uh, in 2024. Trump himself uh, calling it election interference. He weighed in on the 14th Amendment argument against him, writing on Truth Social that almost all legal scholars have voiced opinions that the 14th Amendment has no legal basis or standing relative to the upcoming 2024 presidential election. And look, Trump is far and away the front runner at this point. Poll after poll shows him actually gaining momentum. At this point, he's got about 52% of Republican primary voters and Republican-leaning independents. He's almost 40 points ahead of DeSantis. No other candidate is even in double digits. 
Not in many of those polls. In some of the state polls, uh, DeSantis, uh, Tim Scott, Ramaswamy get within, I don't know, 30% of Trump. But that's why some people are looking at this because they're like, well, you know, he's running away with this. Uh, Maybe we should be looking at potentially banning him from the ballot. And I know that that um, rubs even some people who are critics of Trump the wrong way. All right, Joe, we have a lot more to get to, including today's speed read. But want to talk about our new sponsor this week in multiple languages. Te gusta este podcast? Sí, muy bien. Jill, I'm just starting to learn Spanish with the help of our newest partner, Babbel. Obviously, the best way to learn a language is through immersion, living where the language is spoken natively, using it every day. Well, the second best way to learn a language, Babbel. Because with Babbel, you can start speaking a language in just three weeks. I'm going to keep working on my Spanish. It's been something I've been hoping to learn for years. And with the help of Babbel on the go, uh, in the car, etc., I can go through their very easy 10-minute lessons. They're designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language again in just three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, so it's very practical, uh, not like that junior high or high school a language class you might have taken where everything was very kind of into the weeds of grammar. This is very practical. It takes you into scenarios where you can uh, start to practice the language So it's things like ordering food, asking for directions, speaking to merchants. Obviously, in many countries around the world these days, more and more people speak English. At the same time, it's really important to learn a language, especially if you're outside of cities or in certain countries where still English is not that prevalent. So with over 10 million subscriptions sold, Babbel is real language learning for real conversations. And right now they're partnering with Mo News for a special deal, a limited time deal for our listeners. You can get started right now. You'll get 55% off your Babbel subscription. That is Babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L. Again, 55% off for Mo News listeners. Head over now to babbel.com slash monews, B-A-B-B-E-L.com slash monews. That 55% off, that means it's just about $6 a month to learn a new language, uh, depending on what package you pick. One more time, that website is babbel.com slash monews, B-A-B-B-E-L.com slash monews. Rules and restrictions may apply. Time now for the speed read. Let's start overseas from Politico. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with Ukrainian officials in Kyiv on Wednesday amid a flurry of Russian airstrikes, including one that killed at least 16 civilians. That airstrike hit a market in an eastern city near the front lines. Moscow also firing cruise missiles at Kyiv. Blinken touched down early Wednesday. He met with Ukrainian President Zelensky and other top officials to, quote, show unwavering commitment to Ukraine's sovereignty, territorial integrity, and democracy. This as its counteroffensive against Russian troops continues. The counteroffensive has progressed slowly. We've talked about it on this podcast in recent months, drawing some concern uh, among U.S. military experts, too, that the Ukraine's ability to pierce through Russia here is uh, not being conducted in an organized, effective way. The Ukrainians are pushing back, saying, stop it. We're doing fine. And they have made some progress in recent weeks, though Russia does continue to control nearly 20% of the country. Imagine the entire eastern seaboard taken over by another country. That is 20% of the United States. Blinken, while he's been there this week, said Ukrainian troops are making headway. He pledged another billion, $1 billion in new American aid to Ukraine, including financial and humanitarian aid. There's also reports the U.S. is going to be sending depleted uranium rounds, which are 
controversial to the Ukrainians. It comes after uh, we sent them cluster bombs recently. But it does come at a time where increasingly among conservatives, as well as some uh, liberals, you're seeing skepticism about this continuous aid to Ukraine. The U.S. right now has sent upwards of $70 billion to Ukraine over the course of these past 18 months. Biden is asking for another $24 billion in total aid. It's unclear, though, whether Congress will provide that in the coming week. So look for that fight on Capitol Hill. For some perspective on the $70 billion, that's about 20 times more than we give any other U.S. ally in any given year. Most of it is a couple billion dollars to the Egyptians, the Jordanians, the Israelis. Uh, but when you compare it to the overall U.S. military and defense budget, that's a budget of $1.7 trillion. So $70 billion, just a fraction of that. So we put together those numbers for everyone over on the Mo News Instagram page. You can check that out in the highlights for just perspective on how much the U.S. is giving versus other countries per capita overall based on the economy, based on our defense budget, based on other things. And so it just gives you a bit of perspective on what $70 billion is these days. From the Associated Press, authorities have moved and expanded the search area for a convicted murderer who escaped from jail in suburban Philadelphia last week after he was spotted on a trail camera at one of the nation's premier botanical gardens. 34-year-old Danilo Cavalcante has been spotted five times since he escaped last Thursday. The most recent sighting of the Chester County prison inmate came Monday night at Longwood Gardens, where surveillance video captured him walking through the area with a duffel bag, backpack, and hooded sweatshirt. The expanded search causing two nearby school districts to cancel classes as a precaution, and authorities are urging residents to keep their homes and vehicles locked. They're also asking residents to check the homes of vacationing neighbors and look out for missing cars, bicycles, or any other mode of transportation that he potentially could use to get away. Jill, we've heard from a number of people in the Monus community who are living in fear in the Philly suburbs right now uh, as they lock down, as uh, more uh, footage comes out of uh, Cavalcante making his way um, around town, grabbing things, grabbing bicycles, uh, grabbing food. Uh, and, you know, living in fear that they have to have their doors locked because this convicted murderer is on the loose. And so this search continues uh, a week in. Uh, hundreds of law enforcement are out there looking for him. In the meantime, we got some new surveillance video about how he escaped prison in the first place, stretching himself between a pair of parallel walls. You see him climbing up. Cavalcante stretched his five foot, 120 pound frame across the brick and cinder block walls to push himself to the roof of Chester County Prison. Uh, before making his way out on Thursday. His point of escape was in the exercise yard, where it turns out another inmate earlier this year did the same exact thing. Now, that inmate was captured about a half mile from the prison, just a few minutes after his escape. And the prison, to try to prevent one of these, then put razor wire on the roof. But apparently that did not stop Cavalcante. So a lot of questions here on how basically another prisoner just a few months later able to do the same thing and actually get out. Security consultants had told the prison, apparently, that the sharp wire would not be enough to prevent future escapes. The prison is now considering other measures, such as enclosing the exercise yards, adding more cameras. A little too little too late as far as all these community members are concerned, as this guy remains on the loose. According to reports here, guards didn't realize that Cavalcante was missing from the exercise yard until they lined the group up uh, to take them back to their cells and were like, oh, some guy got out here. We got to look into this. By then, he was gone, and now it's been eight days, and you have this community living in fear here and wondering when they're going to get this guy 
who, again, is a convicted murderer. By the way, he's wanted for crimes in Brazil. Uh, he was set to be transferred to a prison. It's a really scary situation in the uh, Philly suburbs right now. From Axios, Elon Musk threatening to sue the Anti-Defamation League this week after blaming the nonprofit for an advertising revenue slump on X since he led a takeover of the platform formerly known as Twitter. Musk accusing the ADL in a post on X of, quote, trying to kill this platform by falsely accusing it and me of being anti-Semitic after the nonprofit reported a spike in hate speech on the platform following the reinstatement of some banned accounts. Musk saying that U.S. advertising revenue is still down about 60%, primarily because of pressure on advertisers by the ADL. In parentheses, he says that's what advertisers tell us. So they almost succeeded in killing X slash Twitter. Even Elon knows that the X thing hasn't happened yet. He has to keep calling it X slash Twitter. Now, back in May, the Anti-Defamation League published a report that found over 5,000 examples from February of um, anti-Semitism from 2,173 accounts on Twitter after accounts were reinstated under free speech advocate Musk's direction. Yeah, so quick recap here of the last 18 months. Musk wanted to buy Twitter, then he didn't want to buy Twitter. When he offered to buy Twitter, it was worth 40-something billion dollars. It is now worth 20-something billion dollars. He was eventually uh, forced, based on the agreement, to buy Twitter after wanting it, not wanting it, wanting it. He gets it. Immediately, advertisers start to pull out. They don't like the direction he's taking it. And it does come as, you know, he's a free speech absolutist. That's how he refers to himself. And he's let on a lot of accounts that have engaged in things that previously got them banned on the platform. So the ADL, other groups uh, reporting here that hate is up. And now Musk is saying, you know why nobody wants to advertise with us? Because you guys are saying it's a bad place, as opposed to admitting that maybe he's letting on people uh, who are uh, dissuading advertisers who don't want their ads, their brand to be appearing next to hate speech. He is already suing another organization called the Center for Countering Digital Hate, accusing the nonprofit of making false claims after it found bigoted speech had surged on the platform since he took it over last fall. So now he's threatening a second lawsuit here as a free speech absolutist. He should know uh, what the ADL and the other center here are up to is free speech. Uh, and so a lot of legal experts uh, scratching their heads here as to what Musk's strategy is, besides trying to dissuade them from putting out more reports on what's happening on his platform. An ADL spokesperson saying in a statement that while it doesn't comment on legal threats, it is, quote, unsurprised yet undeterred that anti-Semites, white supremacists, conspiracy theorists and other trolls have launched a coordinated attack on our organization. So that's where we're at. You know, the ADL, not a perfect organization by any means, but uh, it appears here, you know, Elon looking for some uh, folks to blame for the fact that the platform he bought a year ago is worth half. I think the term is scapegoating. And I believe I've, I believe I'm familiar with that. <laughs> We've seen that before. Okay, Mosh, in much lighter and happier news here, we have got a big couple days at the U.S. Open from CNN. 19-year-old Coco Goff becoming the first American teenager to reach the final four at Flushing Meadows since Serena Williams in 2001. She's going to be facing number 10, Carolina Muchova of the Czech Republic tonight at 7 p.m., and on the men's side, history was made on Tuesday night, and that is when two Americans, Francis Tiafo and Ben Shelton, faced off. It is the first time since 2008 that two black men played each other at Arthur Ashe Stadium. 
So it's exciting to watch here uh, the rise of a new generation here of Americans. It's been nearly two decades since an American male won uh, the U.S. Open here in New York. Shelton came out on top in that match, upsetting the world number 10 there, Tiafo, and booking a semifinal clash with the 23-time Grand Slam winner, Novak Djokovic. That's set for tomorrow night. In the meantime, Jill, I'm reading about this drink called the Honey Deuce. <laughs> They're serving at the U.S. Open. Uh, apparently, it's a mix of vodka, raspberry liqueur, lemonade, and skewered melon spheres that look like tennis balls. And apparently, it's all the rage there, and people are also trying to make it at home. Again, the Honey Deuce... Vodka, raspberry liquor, lemonade, skewered melon spheres. Moshe, I'm so glad that you have your priorities straight here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, listen, I'm looking forward to seeing Coco Golf um, in person. But this drink apparently is on track to break the record uh, in terms of sales there at the U.S. Open. I'm going to enjoy that while I watch. It does sound good. Uh, but I think that you make a good point, though, just about this renaissance and this new generation of American tennis players, particularly on the men's side, I have really enjoyed turning on the open this year and just seeing that American flag next to so many names. Um, it's added just a level of excitement, I think, to the sport that hasn't been there in a while. Yeah, we're old enough to have grown up with the Andre Agassiz of the world, uh, the tail end of McEnroe, uh, Sampras. We had you know sort of the flash of Andy Roddick. Um, and it's been, uh, it's been tough times, uh, for a number of years. Um, obviously we've been watching, you know, the incredible tennis of Djokovic, Nadal, um, who's the Swiss guy. Federer. And Federer and, uh. The Swiss guy, the Swiss guy, Moshe. <laughs> Who are those sisters? Something Williams, Williams? sisters. <laughs> Jill, I saw King Richard, okay? And from The Guardian, the Rolling Stones have announced details of their first album of new songs in nearly two decades. It is called Hackney Diamonds, with guests like Lady Gaga, Stevie Wonder, and former Stones bassist Bill Wyman. It also contains the final recordings with the band by late drummer Charlie Watts, who appears on two tracks. And it is the first time Mick Jagger and Keith Richards have written an album of new music since A Bigger Bang in 2005. And it is the first studio album of any kind since 2016's collection of blues covers uh, called Blue and Lonesome. What's incredible here, the Stones formed in 1962. Uh, Mick Jagger is now 80. He turned 80 over the summer. Uh, Keith Richards, 79. Ronnie Wood, 76. They announced this album, which, by the way, will come out in uh, mid-October uh, over in London with uh, Mick Jagger impersonator Jimmy Fallon. So they had a fun little event there. Uh, Jagger saying, quote, I don't want to be big-headed, but we wouldn't have put this record out if we hadn't really liked it. He's referencing there the 18-year delay in putting out new music. Uh, Jagger admitting yesterday, quote, we were maybe a bit too lazy. Suddenly we said, let's put a deadline on this. We did it pretty quick. There were a lot of ideas floating about it, and we gathered them together just before Christmas. So the Rolling Stones, formed in the early 60s, still putting out uh, new music here. Uh, pretty incredible. Got to see them perform at MedLife Stadium a couple of years ago. Uh, here and at least as of uh, a couple summers ago, Jill, still incredible live performers as well. There is a meme going around the internet. I don't know if you have seen it. It is basically Mick Jagger, who is 80, next to Mitch McConnell, who is 81. And it says, the benefits of a life of sex, drugs, and rock and roll should not be ignored. Now that you bring that up, Jill, uh, within a year, we have Joe Biden, Mick Jagger, and Mitch McConnell. Not typically people you compare it to each other, but they all would have been in the same high school class. 
But would they have been friends? I don't know. Good question. All right, now time for On This Day in History. We're going to begin in 1813. Yesterday, we told you about the origin of the name The Tank. Uh, Today, how the U.S. gets its nickname, Uncle Sam. The name is linked to Samuel Wilson. He was a meatpacker in Troy, New York, who supplied barrels of beef to the U.S. Army during the War of 1812. He would stamp the barrels with U.S. for United States. But soldiers began referring to it as Uncle Sam's Meat. A local newspaper came out with a story on this day 210 years ago, picking up on the story of Uncle Sam. Uh, That would lead to its popularity, as well as the nickname for the U.S. government as Uncle Sam. I always wondered where that came from. Jill, it's pretty incredible that these things we take for granted. We never ask, like, wait, how is like, that? Like, who's Why Uncle Sam? Like, right? <laughs> like, I think that's what kids are for. Isn't that something kids should be asking? <laughs> like, what's that about? And you're like, I don't know. And we have Google now, and we can easily look these things up. All right, fast forward to 1940. On this day, 300 German bombers started to raid London. It began 57 consecutive nights of bombing. The bombing blitzkrieg would continue until May of 1941. After the successful occupation of France, it was only a matter of time before Hitler turned his attention to England. He ruled out an invasion of the island because it would be too difficult, so he tried to wear them down by air. Uh, But, of course, uh, the British would stand strong. They would have Winston Churchill as their leader. And earlier that summer of 1940, preceding uh, this 57 consecutive nights of bombing, he gave a speech to Parliament that inspired the nation. Here's a bit of it. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. All right, Jill, tough turn here. Slight change of pace. On this day in 1985, Small Wonder premiered. (laughs) on TV. Some of you might remember that comedy about a robotics engineer who created a robot modeled after a human girl, then tried to pass it off as their adopted daughter, Vicky. We've talked earlier on this podcast on previous episodes about the weird sitcoms of the 1980s. Small wonder, one of them. And we'll fast forward to the 1990s here. uh, And a story we've been talking about recently, because there have been some new developments in the case. On this day in 1996, Tupac Shakur, the rapper, was shot several times on the Vegas Strip after attending a boxing match. While his killer was never identified nearly 30 years later, uh, many believe Orlando Anderson, a member of a rival gang, was responsible for the killing. All right, and we're going to end here with a bit of music news. I promise this is a big day in music history, September 7th. Turning 40 years old today, Madonna's song Holiday is released today in 1983. Madonna, most um, set to begin a world tour, but then she was hospitalized in the ICU. Um, and apparently she was recovering, but then injured herself again uh, at rehearsals, but not, not quite as serious as what she went through. But, um, you know, just not having some good luck now. Yeah, there's a lot of speculation. She, By the way, she's 65 years old. She's trying to head back out on tour. Uh, so we're wishing uh, Madonna a full recovery as some of her songs unbelievably celebrate their 40th birthday here. Another 80s hit, St. Elmo's Fire, Man in Motion, reached number one today, 38 years ago. Recognize that tune from the uh, classic 80s film there with the Brat Pack. And turning 36 years old today, Michael Jackson's song, Bad, released today in 1987. All right, we want to thank you for listening to the Mo News podcast. If you like what you hear, 
please share this with your friends. It will help us grow. We will really appreciate it. Follow us and subscribe. This way you don't miss an episode. We'll immediately appear on your phones every morning and review us in the app store. And make sure if you like our uh, podcast in your feed every morning before 5 a.m., we also have a newsletter that comes out every morning uh, by 5 a.m. You can sign up for that over at mo.news. Just click on the newsletter tab, put in your email address, and it'll ensure you have a deep dive plus like 20 to 25 interesting, compelling, important, and fun links to click on every morning. All right. Bye, everybody. Later. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.